as we sing that song, as we think about uh, your love being poured out over us on the cross for my sins, for the fact that the fact remains that without Christ I have no hope, without Christ I have no peace, I have no joy, I have no life. And so today we thank you for the promise we have in the sending of your son, his death, burial, and resurrection, which offers us life. And God, may we understand that, may we be encouraged by that. But God, I also pray today that if there's somebody here who has never responded to that grace and that mercy, that you would speak to them, that your spirit would draw them, that they would understand that it's only by Christ that they can have that life that is offered. And so today, God, we pray that you would change hearts, that you would change minds and lives through the reading and teaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter two. As you turn to Galatians chapter two, I wanna remind you what we've covered. We started a series about three weeks ago called Freedom, and we're talking about freedom in Christ, the freedom we have in the gospel, what Jesus offers, and really what we're gonna be looking at today is really one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament because nobody likes conflict, right? I mean, not most normal people, you know. Most people, when conflict comes, you have a number of people who respond in a number of different ways. Conflict comes, and some people just want to do what? Hide. It's like, I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to go away. I'm going to, I'm going to stick my head in the sand, and maybe it'll all just disappear. And then you have some people who can deal with conflict, but deal with conflict in a very abrasive way, which... Really, to a certain extent, when I read the New Testament, when I read Paul's writings, I kind of feel like sometimes that's Paul. Paul didn't sugarcoat things. Paul didn't care what you thought. Paul didn't worry about your feelings. Paul's just going to tell you the way it is. Paul's the guy who, you know, really could care less how you feel. He's just going to say, hey, guess what? Get over it. Suck it up. Be a man. You know, uh, (laughs) we play with with baseball, I've noticed a number of things. As a coach, uh, <clears throat> number one, I think men have very little mercy at times, especially when it comes to pain. Uh, number two, when you play baseball, there's just an attitude that you have to have, and that attitude is you get hit by the ball, suck it up, shake it off, let's go. All right? So we were playing a tournament yesterday at Oak Grove, and uh, I mean, this kid just got drilled, just laid out, falls to the ground, <laughs> And his coach is like, oh, come on, get up, shake it off, quit being a wuss, suck it up. Come on, let's go, get down there, run it out. And I'm going, man, that was totally me. Because <laughs> I do the same thing to my kids. It's like, kids got tears pouring down their eyes. It's like, hey, let's go, get down there. You don't cry, you gotta suck it up. You know, it's kind of, and, and it really is just that mentality. But listen to what happens. Two of the leading apostles, two of the leading, most influential guys in the New Testament are coming to a point where they're going to have a face-to-face open conflict and everybody else goes, oh, right? You ever seen two people get into a conversation or an argument and what what, what do people want to do? Okay, yep, it's my time to inch my way out of the room so I don't have to be in that awkward situation where everybody's at. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. 
Paul opposes Peter. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And I want to remind you of a couple things that took place. Paul, in the book of Galatians, is writing to the people at Galatia. There's churches all around this area. And he's writing to them to say, hey, here's the deal. You're turning from the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is all that you need for salvation. You're turning away from it. And you're turning to something that he says is really no gospel at all. All right, you're, 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 you're turning to legalistic, man-made religious traditions that have nothing to do with your salvation. And so Paul says, hey, it's no good news. It shouldn't be good news because you're trying to do something you can't do. And then there's a people who are standing up, they're, they're combative, they're, they're against Paul's teaching. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem and come to find out his his message, the message of the gospel Paul has been preaching, lines up with the apostles uh, that are already in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and they give Paul the right hand of fellowship. Now listen to verse 11. Paul's given the right hand of fellowship, as we see in verse 9 and verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, what happens? Yeah, I opposed him to his face. Ouch. It's pretty harsh, right? pretty upfront. To a certain extent, some people say, well, that's pretty arrogant. Paul, this guy, opposes Peter, but listen to why. Because he was what? Clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter would go and fellowship with the Gentiles. He would hang out. He would fellowship with them. He would eat with them. They would, and the idea of fellowship was a, a breaking of bread. There's this deep relational the connection that takes place. But when they arrived, he what? Began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting, I love this part when Paul says this, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified or made right or righteous in God's eyes. And so here's the reality. One of the most tense, dramatic episodes in the New Testament with these two apostles coming face to face in open conflict over the actions of believers. That's the reality of what takes place. What Peter was saying was, it's okay to hang out with Gentiles until a certain group came around. And this group was the legalistic group. This group were the Pharisaical group, the group that said they had to obey the law in order to be saved. And so what Paul says is, Peter, you're missing the boat. How is it okay for you to hang around them when these people aren't around, but not hang around them when they are around? You're, you're treating people with the wrong attitude. And, and what I want you to begin to see is, Listen to what happens. When Peter came to Antioch, I'm going to give you some, some very basic background information about Antioch. We've read about it in the, if you were here during our sermon series on Acts, but 
Antioch was the, the primary city, the capital city of Syria, basically the, the chief city of Syria where the Gentile, listen, where the Gentile mission began. The mission to reach the Gentiles began in Antioch, and if you go back and read Acts chapter 13, it is the birthplace of where Christians, or where the disciples of Christ were first called Christians. And so Peter comes to Antioch after extending a right hand of fellowship to Paul because the gospel that Paul preached lined up with the gospel that was passed down to the disciples, and what happens? Peter, who extends the right hand of fellowship, is now what? face-to-face in conflict with Paul. That's, that's not very comforting, is it? I mean, you think about Peter. Who is Peter? I mean, he's one of the, the top-known disciples of the time, you know? I mean, you think about how bad Peter was, how awesome he was, how strong Peter was, and you think about that, and Paul runs into this problem with Peter, and so Paul opposes him to his face. And so Paul has run into the problem in the churches they started, and that problem is starting to lead people astray. And that's what Paul is laying out. He's saying, hey, look, you're leading people astray. Not just you, but you've even led Barnabas astray, is what he says. And so Peter is trying to understand what's going on, and Paul's trying to communicate it. But I want you to understand this. Since it was God that gave the law, because here's the question a lot of people say. Well, Brian, what you're telling me is I don't have to obey the law. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. Listen to what happens. Since it was God that gave the law, how can we say that it has no right to justify you? That's easy. Because the Bible says it has no right to justify you. The law does nothing to justify you. Matter of fact, the law, listen, has every right to command you to love God. It has every right to command you to love your spouse, to love your neighbor, to not covet, to not steal, to not commit adultery. It has every right to expect that of you, but the law has no right to save you. It has no right to redeem you. It has no power to save you. The law is holy and divine, but only in so much as it does its job. If you remember last week, I told you the law is a lot like a diagnosis, all right? When I worked for my dad, we had this computer. Matter of fact, if you go out to Doug Hodge's shop, he has the same computer. And underneath the dash of your car, there's a little plug. When you have a check engine light come on, he gets the computer. We hook it up to the car. You bust the computer open. You turn it on. You tell the type of car. It reads all the makes. It reads all the codes and problems you have. And it'll say, this is the problem. It just diagnoses the problem. It doesn't fix it. Matter of fact, there's times where the diagnosis of the problem, it just says this is the problem. It doesn't give you the specific steps. You have to go to the what? The mechanic. The mechanic is the one who has to fix the problem. And the law is the diagnosis. It's the thing that diagnoses the problem, but the law doesn't fix the problem, does it? I mean, I can't, when I hook the computer up, I can't make the computer fix the car. I can make the computer clear codes. And it may work for a couple minutes or a couple days, and then all of a sudden the code will pop up. Some of you have driven cars. Maybe you've gone through that situation, that problem. But the law just diagnoses the problem. The law can't fix the problem. And so when you think about that, I want you to understand that, that the computer doesn't fix the car. The computer diagnoses it. You have to go to the mechanic. And so the question today is this. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like saying, I don't need the church? Have you ever felt like saying, 
I'm done with religion. You ever felt like walking away and just saying, I'm done with it? I've got the Jesus thing, but I don't need all the other stuff. Good news. When the gospel is the primary focus and we fix our eyes on Jesus, all the other things are really tertiary. They're secondary. They're, they're not the priority. But I want, to, I, want to, I want you to understand this too. When the church functions the way the church should as a fellowship, a body of believers connected to loving each other, serving each other, serving the community, preaching the gospel outside, guess what happens? It's not a legalistic mentality that you have to attend church. It's a desire that says, I need my church. I need my family. I need that body to be around me, to encourage me, to strengthen me, to fill me up, to push me, to hold me accountable, to love on me and, and to help me when I'm going through the struggles and the trials and the difficulties and, and all of that. So have you ever felt like giving up? You ever felt like you don't need it anymore? Well, you're in good hands. There's a, a recent article came out the beginning of May done by Pew, Pew Research um, who does a lot of studies on it. Matter of fact, if you watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox, uh, they did some major uh, reporting on this. Uh, there's uh, Washington Post. Um, there's all kinds of articles. You can go and look it up. The Pew Research on really the, the, the decrease in the millennials leaving the church. All right, and, and CNN said this. This is the title of their, their uh, write-up. It was Millennials Are Leaving the Church in Droves. And I'm going to read you just this very simple part, and it says this. There was a study conducted by the Pew Research Center and an article that was written on CNN, and it says, at its core, the Christian life is a set of sacred traditions linking generations of sacraments, Sunday school lessons, youth ministry morals, and family gatherings sanctified by prayer an unbroken circle in the, worlds of an old, in the words of an old hymn. In modern America, that circle may not be completely shot, but it's wobbly and badly bent, according to a landmark study uh, conducted by Pew Research Center. Here's the reality, and what I want to challenge you with this. Do you hear what they said? The Christian life is a set of what? Sacred what? Traditions. And what has sadly infiltrated so many churches and so many believers' minds is that it's the sacred traditions of linking generations of sacraments, Sunday school lessons, and youth ministry morals and family gatherings when the reality is the church should be built not upon sac sacred traditions but upon the simple fact that the gospel is the only thing we need. Traditions, they're okay, but they should never be the priority. The gospel should be the priority so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because he is the one who brings about the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the message that the old covenant is gone, the law, and the new covenant is now brought about. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The blood that we just sang about, the very blood that covers me is the very thing that the new covenant promises. And so what I want you to begin to understand is that in the midst of all of this, as long as we maintain our eyes and our focus and we fix our eyes on Christ, something is good, good is gonna come about. Something great is gonna come about. Looking at the long view, I'm gonna read a little bit more of this. Looking at the long view, the generational spans 
are striking. This is more of their quote. Eight, whereas 85% of the silent generation, those are people born between 28, 1928 and 1945, call themselves Christians, just 56% of today's young millennials, people born between 90 through 96, do the same. Only 56% versus 85%. Even though the vast amount or vast majority, about eight in 10, were raised in religious home, homes, each successive generation of Americans includes fewer and fewer Christians. Why? Are we, are we teaching our kids to become legalistic and moralistic, or are we teaching them to follow Christ? Are we teaching them about traditions, sacred traditions, or are we teaching them about the gospel and the gospel alone, the need for the gospel, that the gospel will penetrate and infiltrate every area of our lives? So how did it become about sacred traditions and not Jesus? What was the primary focus? And so today, my main statement, the thesis, if you remember anything, I want you to remember this. This is the the main thing you will always hear. Fixing your eyes on Jesus will keep you from growing weary and giving up. If you fix, here's the thing. If you fix your eyes on, I've got to attend Sunday school, at some point you're gonna give up. (laughs) If you make it all about attending church nonstop, at some point you're gonna give up. If you make it about doing things over and over and over again, at some point you're gonna give up. At some point you're gonna be wore down. At some point you're gonna say enough is enough, I'm done. If you make it about I fix my eyes on Christ, Christ says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Matter of fact, he says, cast all your cares on me when you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we set ourselves up for a success. But what, listen, here's the question. What causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus? And I think there's a couple of things we're gonna look at. Number one is this. I think there's fear and the desire to be accepted. Listen to what happens in verses 11 and following. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. And then he says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Fear does a number on us, doesn't it? When we're afraid of something, don't we let that fear oftentimes control us? Don't we let that fear make the decision for us? Don't we let that fear let us treat people in a way that maybe we shouldn't treat people? Fear will wreak havoc. And I want you to understand what ends up happening with Peter because Peter really has shown that he is not focused on Christ because the reality is when Peter has his eyes fixed on Jesus, he's a spiritual stud. He's like the Navy SEAL of spirituality if you wanna consider it that. I mean, you think about what Peter accomplishes in the book of Acts, and you're like, golly, that guy's behind enemy lines. He's not afraid. I mean, he goes to prison. He's like, I don't care. You can send me to prison. I'm going to stand before you guys, and I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. I'm going to tell you the gospel. I'm going to tell you that I will never listen to man, but I will only listen to God. You remember all that stuff that Peter says? You remember when Peter is out on the water with the other disciples, and all of a sudden they look out, and they see this guy walking across the water, and he realizes it's Jesus, and what does Peter say? Hey, 
I want to, I want to come out there. Nobody else did it. I mean, you think about that. If you've got a storm going on, I'm going to be puking off the side of the boat. I guarantee you that. I'm not looking out at who's walking on the water. I'm going to be hurling my guts out. And Peter's like, hey, I want to get out. I want to walk out there. What's he do? He keeps his eyes on Jesus and he walks on the water, right? The minute he takes his eyes off, what happens? He starts to sink. When Jesus' eyes are fit, or when Peter's eyes are fixed on Jesus, he's a spiritual stud. But when Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he's nothing more than a crazy guy. And all the disciples sit back and watch him sink, and they're like, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. But yet Peter was one of the greatest. Peter and the disciples are out on that boat, and they get to experience a great thing. Think about Peter at the Last Supper. Peter at the Last Supper, and, and Jesus is talking about he's going to die. And Peter says, even if, even if I die, I'm never going to betray you. And what does Jesus say? Hey, guess what, Peter? You're not just going to deny me. You're going to do it three times. Fear plays a huge role. So Peter has a way of taking his eyes off Jesus and putting them on other things, and that's exactly what happens here. Peter puts his eyes on something else, and listen, it says it was because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, and I wanna clarify it with this. We have a way of doing that. Peter wants man's approval. He wants man's acceptance. He wants man's love and, and compassion, and he's looking for those same desires that we look for in our lives. We strive for what? We strive for the approval of man, that, man, that people are gonna be happy with us, that they're gonna be our friends, they're gonna accept us for who we are, and yet at times we'll oftentimes lay aside our Christianity and following Christ just to be accepted by them. And the great news is this, the gospel rescues us from that, but it also continuously purifies us. It's a thing that takes place day in and day out. And you have to preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out. A lot of people come with this mentality that I'm a sinner so I need the gospel so I can continue sinning. When the reality is I'm a sinner, I need the gospel more and more and more and more and more because the gospel helps me over, over, overcome, overcome, overcome my sin. The gospel helps me to my sins. The gospel helps me live the life that I'm worthy and being called to live. Here's the, here's the crazy thing that I'm gonna say when, when we grew up. When I grew up, people will say, listen, people will say, if it's all about grace and not about the law, then people are gonna use the gospel to walk in whatever way they wanna walk. They're gonna do whatever they want. They're gonna use the gospel as the crutch. I can do whatever I want. And that's true. Is it not? That's the reality. People will use the gospel and say, I can do whatever I want. But I also want you to understand this point. This is an absolutely true point, but I also believe it reveals that you don't truly understand or believe the gospel. When you say, I can do whatever I want, you don't truly understand or believe the gospel because the gospel is very clear. Matter of fact, we're gonna get into it next week when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. There, there, there's some great things here that, that end up taking place because what we want is we want our life and we want the gospel and we want the gospel when it's necessary or when it's important, but we don't need it all the time. And the reality is we need it 
all the time. And so instead of running to what heals us, which is the gospel, oftentimes we run to the scan. We run to the problem. We run to the diagnosis. We run and we say, well, if you just read your Bible more. You ever hear that? If you just stopped or if you just didn't stop going to church. How many of you have invited somebody? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have invited somebody to church recently? Versus how many of you have shared the gospel recently? See, oftentimes what we'll do is we got this legalistic mentality. If you just came to church, you could get saved. If you just came to church, you'll turn your life around. Now, hear me out. I'm all for the church. The church is the body. It's the people that's supposed to accomplish that. But we've got this in our mind that if people come to church, instead of what? The church going to the people. You see how legalism creeps in? If he just came to church, his life would be different. No. If he came to Jesus, his life would be different. Church is the secondary thing. I hope you get that picture. Now, if somebody comes to church and then they come to Christ, that's great. But what I'm trying to tell you is inside our mind, there's a legalistic idea that if they just came to church, if they would just read the Bible, or how about this one? You've heard it said, if our country would just humble itself and pray. Anybody hear that? That's legalism. If our country came to Christ, then they would humble themselves and pray. People who are not Christians are not going to humble themselves and pray. It's it's not going to happen. And so what we have to do is we take the gospel to them. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're not led astray into a legalistic mentality. We're led into a relationship with him. Number two. What causes us to take our eyes off Jesus, I believe, is this, arrogance and unnecessary expectations. Now, that comes across very harsh, but listen to what happens in verse 14. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth, I said to Peter in front of them all, hey, Peter, you're a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile, and yet you want everybody else to live like you're not. Right? That to me in, 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 in so many ways describes the church. We, we have this mentality that we want people to live a certain way and we say, hey, they should be living this way. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you living that way? Are you as a body, as a believer in the, in the body of Christ, are you living the way Jesus has called you to live? When we talk about the law, do you remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right? Are you living by the law? The law was given so that you could live it out in the strength of Christ, that Christ could give it to you. So do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you make decisions based upon that? Do you make financial decisions based upon the fact of saying, I love God more than I love a car, sports, TV, movies, entertainment, retirement, And we could go all the way around. I'm not just talking about all those things, but do you love God more than everything else? Do you follow him? Do you lay it down? Arrogance and unnecessary expectations will always cause us to take our eyes off Christ. Listen to what Paul says. He literally says this. They were not acting in line with the truth of the what? The gospel. 
Matter of fact, if you jump back up to verse 13 where it says the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, um, the, the, the short term or more or less would be hypocrisy is played out as play acting. What happens in a play? When you're in a play, are you really that person? No, you're what? You're what? You're, you're acting, right? You're, you're play acting. And a hypocrite is somebody who's what? They're play acting the role. They, they got the talk, but they may not have the walk. And so Paul is literally saying, here's the deal. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so what he says is, hey, you weren't acting in truth or in line with the gospel, so I called you out. And so the question, believers, is this. Are you acting out of arrogance or unnecessary expectation? Do we put unrealistic expectations on people at times? Correction or judgment of other believers, listen, is okay. Listen to what Paul does. Paul is calling out Peter, and it's not a comfortable situation. Nobody wants to be involved. Everybody wants to be like, hmm, I'm hiding. Peter and Paul. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It might be like, I don't know, Billy Graham and Charles Stanley going toe-to-toe. I don't, I mean, that's all I can think of. You got Peter and Paul. Peter extends the right hand of fellowship, and Paul goes, yeah, I'm opposing you. <laughs> Whoa. But he does it for the sake of the what? Gospel. And so here's the challenge. And I want you to understand this. There are times where things happen in a church that have to happen because something that is taking place is not of the gospel. It is not of the good news of Christ. It does not reflect upon the body. It doesn't speak the truth. It doesn't promote Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't promote grace and mercy. It promotes legalism. It promotes traditions. It promotes everything else. And what Peter or Paul says is if it's not or if it's taking away from or not in line with the truth of the gospel, I have to stand opposed to it. And so we can't let that creep in. Arrogance and unnecessary expectations will oftentimes mislead lead us. Think about this. There's always been this mentality, if you do this and don't do that, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do this and you do that, you won't. I use this as an example. On, on Tuesday, I, I met with a number of pastors. We meet once a month about churches trying to revitalize and stuff like that. We were talking about this. And uh, we had an experience at our last church we were at, but in the past, deacons oftentimes were selected as deacons, not necessarily based upon the fact that they met the biblical requirements. It was the fact that they were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night attenders. I've run into multiple deacons while I've been in ministry who have at one point or another come around later and said, I've never been saved. I did the religious work. I, I came to Sunday school. I volunteered on the building committee. I, I did all these things, but I've never been saved. I have never given my life to Christ. And what I want you to understand is this. We have looked and said, well, he attends, so he must be a believer. He's a nice guy, so he must be a... And the reality is it never led to that person really, or that person was never led by Jesus to be a deacon. They just stepped into the role because the church said, hey, 
next greatest thing. So what's the answer to these? And I believe that Paul answers this very quickly. What's the answer to these? I mean, when we look at it, what causes us to take our eyes off Jesus? We, we said it's a fear and a desire to be accepted. We said it's arrogance and unnecessary expectation. But what is the answer to all of these? And listen to the following verses. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. And I want you to understand what takes place here. Paul is literally using the words of the Jewish people to connect with Peter. Because what would happen in verse 15 when he says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, the Jews would oftentimes call the Gentiles dogs or Gentile sinners and we're not like them. And so what Paul is trying to do is to connect with Peter and say, hey, look, we who are Jews by birth and not the Gentile sinners know that it's not by the law Man is justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is laying that out to be upfront and honest to say it's not about the legalistic, ritualistic, sacramental setups that have been set up. It is about the faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That is the gospel. That is good news. That is the hope we have. And so what I want to challenge you today, church, this, that if we allow people to put their faith and trust in Christ and we walk them through the biblical understanding of discipleship, not expecting them to turn over and be changed instantaneously necessarily, but to be walking in a process where they deal with the struggles and the sins that they have and we teach them and we train them to what it is to follow Christ, that's different. That's hope. But that they put their faith in Christ first, not expecting an instantaneous change. But if God changes them instantaneously, then that's up to him. Faith in action is exactly what Jesus is asking. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then listen, he says this, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that way me, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So church, the reality is this. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Or are you walking in a legalistic mentality that says, if I do all these things, God is more pleased with me. If I work harder, then God will be more happy with me. If I do this, then I can be saved. Because the reality of the matter is this, that Paul is very clear in opposing this so that people understand that you are not justified by maintaining faith to the ritualistic law, to the laws the Jews had set up or were passed down to them. Faith in Jesus' death on the cross is what makes the difference. Faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. See, Jesus has already done everything that is necessary. And so now when we live in obedience to God, we live in obedience to what he's called us to do, that we love God first and we love others second. The idea would be we love ourselves third. That's not an easy thing, is it? Because I'm really all about me. 
cut me off? I'm going to say something. (laughs) You rip me off, I'm going to come back after you. That's the mentality a lot of times. And what we have to end up doing is we respond with the truth of the gospel. So where have you put your faith? Maybe you put your faith in the outward work. Maybe you've put it in church activity and church attendance. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried. You know, I've, I've oftentimes thought, I, I, someday I'm going to bring up my treadmill. I just don't want to move it out of our basement. Sometimes maybe you're just on that treadmill of religious work. You ever got off a treadmill? Makes you feel kind of weird, right? Kind of all dizzy and feel like you ever, you ever got off the treadmill and you start walking, you feel like you're walking faster? It's like you're on an escalator still. You're like, what the heck's going on? Maybe you're caught on that treadmill of church activity and it leaves you feeling void, feeling lost, feeling neglected, feeling empty. And what we read in Hebrews is this, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who went to the cross because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, Jesus won't let us down. But when we fix our eyes and we try and do things over and over and over again, you're gonna be let down. Why? Because you're trying to live up to man-made ideas, man-made thoughts that'll always fall short, that'll never lead you to fulfillment. You're never gonna be satisfied. Now, I I was talking to, Growing up with high expectations, going in the military with high expectations, I've always had high expectations. And so I'm never satisfied. I'm going to be point blank. You ask my wife. I'm never satisfied. I try an encouragement. I'm just not a, a satisfied person. I'm always looking at the next thing. All right, well, that was good, but how do we get better? Well, that was fun, but how can I make it funner? More fun. That was, make up my own word. All right, you know but I'm never satisfied. And I think that's what ends up happening too when we start to go down a legalistic or ritualistic religious-based mentality. It's never gonna be satisfied. It's the stomach that is never full because you can never do enough. You can never work hard enough. You can never achieve enough. You can never go to enough Sunday school. You can never get enough knowledge. You, can, you get the point, right? Sometimes we think, and here's the mentality, sometimes we think, if I get more knowledge, here here it is, if I get more knowledge, then I'll be more Christ-like and I'll pour more Christ out into other people, right? Right? I'll I'll be able to preach the gospel more. I'll be able to lead my friends. So we, we use this mentality. I continue to get more and more and more knowledge and we miss out on the big picture of what takes place when it's not just about that. Yes, it's growing in your relationship, but it's not just about that. It's about taking what Jesus does in your life and dishing it out, giving it out to other people. Not holding them to a standard that is a man-made standard, but holding them and preaching them and teaching them the gospel because that's what offers us life. The good news of Jesus Christ is it's a promise, it's hope, it's peace, it's life. And so today as we close, we're gonna close with this song. And I want you to think about this because we look at Peter and we say this, but we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the, 
What? God, I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The idea is that we always have this desire to do. To work harder, to attend more, to be better. When the reality is if all of us, every one of us here today, me included, would fix our eyes on Jesus and we would look to Jesus and let Jesus fill us and fulfill us and help us lead others to Christ and help us speak to others and love others, completely drastic change in what we would see. Because I would see, or I I believe we would see people saying, hey, I I can deal with this. I want to be a part of a church that's focused on Jesus. Matter of fact, that's what they're saying in the studies. People are saying, I love Jesus. The problem is, I go to church and I'm not getting Jesus. I'm getting rules. I'm getting, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to. And Jesus says, no, it's done. Now the reality is also this, that when you're a new creation, when you are in Christ, there should be a desire to want more of Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the first and foremost, the primary, 